Hey guys, this is Tom, and this is uh, Reforming Slavics. Today we have a special guest, my brother Mark. Hello. And of course our other co-host, Nick, which we always have. Hey. And today we're talking about Romans 13, and how much authority does the government have over us? And like, as Christians, can we biblically justify the American Revolution? And also talking about how, in hindsight of... COVID-19 should have the churches ever closed uh, let's start maybe by reading Romans 13 to get a better picture of what it says and just to see what it's actually talking about so in Romans 13 verse 1 specifically 1 through 7 let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear for the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do not, but if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God att attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owned. Respect to whom respect is owned. Owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. So, in light of this uh, passage, let's start off with the first question talking about, in hindsight... Should have the churches ever closed uh, because of Romans 19, you know, according to the government mandates saying that churches can't gather? Mark? It's really easy when we're in our present state where we look back and look at what the data is and say, hey, this is how we should have acted. But what we should be doing with hindsight when we apply it backwards is taking out the fear and the emotion and say, logically, at that time, the information we had and also reflecting on biblical scriptures, what are the conclusions and the things we should come to? So if we start back when it first came around, right? Um, we didn't know the numbers. There was numbers as high as 25% saying millions of people would die um, in a very short period of time, um, very high transfer rate, um, very contagious. And so, you know, at that point, okay, two weeks, you know, shut everything down. Let's see what it is. Let's try to stop it. Let's try to isolate it. You know, that didn't really happen. And then there was talks of, well, slow down the curve. Let's take these steps and slow down the curve. And then later on, we had different data where it started coming out. Hey, you know, here's what the reality is. And here's the true numbers. And, and obviously, there was a lot of disagreement even between, <clears throat> I mean, especially you'd say between Christians and brothers. You would have yeah. some Christians and brothers who had their doors full open the whole entire time and said, even our old folks are welcome. There's churches that took a middle position that said, hey, if you're you know, in the vulnerable population, stay home, let's be prudent, but um, don't forbid the gathering of the saints. And then you have the other end is, hey, is we're a year and a half in and it's still online church and we're gonna keep it that way to love our neighbor. And so I would encourage Christian charity and whatever church position there would be. But looking back at what God's word says, it says, do not forbid the gathering of the saints, unless there's a pandemic. No, it doesn't say those last two words. Um, Maybe in the message translation. <laughs> so I was also going to ask, how can you participate in the Lord's Supper without the gathering of the saints? 
I recall at our church, we once did a live transmission, and then everyone participated in the Lord's Supper at home individually. And it felt very strange and very awkward. And, um, you know, it wasn't a true ga- gathering of the body. And so even even that was trying to, like, we were trying to reconcile the fact that we could. And this was literally, like, week one of the whole entire shutdown. The actual, um, you know, stop the curve for two weeks. Yeah. And it was it was strange because it was during Easter time as well. And so there were these, you know, things that people were trying to juggle. And especially for the uh, elders of churches, I found a, you know, it was really hard. On one end, they wanted to um, exemplify the fact that they are trying to obey the authorities according to Romans 13, right? They were trying to make sure that they were not being unruly. Uh, they weren't trying to break the law. They were trying to be faithful to what the mayors of the towns and the cities wanted. And at the same time, they had this mandate from God himself to actually gather the saints, preach the word, and then also worship through the Lord's Supper. And so there's this uh, difficulty there. There was a kind of crossing over into government and the church and that how they interact. Um, there was a lot of Christians upset that, okay, we want to follow the rules, but people said, no, because you're not essential, you cannot gather. And the government's role was, um, the government was trying to decide who was essential or not. And that upset a lot of people. And the other thing that upset people, like for example, MacArthur church, um, they were getting criticized. Hey, you guys are meeting, um, by the local uh, authorities there. And they said, well, look at all these other people gathering and look at all these other secular groups gathering, whether it be for protests outside or, um, and I'm not making a statement on whether those protests were right or wrong, that's not what today's discussion about, but they were saying, look at these other groups and Mm -hmm. we're, we're following the rules better than them. We're having people six feet apart outside. Um, you know, but as winter comes, we, anyway, it was the hypocrisy that got to people. And it was this double standard of, Hey, look, these secular activities are going on. No one's saying anything. No one's being fined. No one's being jailed. And there were clear cut examples of Christians um, being either jailed or being fined <clears throat> here in the States and Canada and around the world where people who were not in a church position. So it was this, um, double standard and it was very cut clear and dry. And uh, in many cases where you can, um, if you go look back, it's very objective how the authorities were treating churches. And so when Christians stand up to that and say, Hey, this is not a fair standard. I think that's very fair. The where more gray line might be is, was it two weeks? Is it a month? Is it three months? Depending on how, how hard to hit the area and your church's demographic, that's, I would say within, um, um, Christian, uh, Liberty, freedom, Christian Liberty. Thank you. And you know, that's where we probably should have charity against one, each other, one another. But I think we, as the church stand in solidarity, when we see a double standard, we also should be giving Christian charity to let the pastor, um, take care of his flock, right? We don't have authority with the church structure, the way it's set up to go from one congregation to another, telling him what to do with this very specific, Hey, start mm-hmm. with this congregation. But obviously, you know, Paul did go to different congregations and tell them, Hey, what you're doing is out of the line of the word of God. But Paul was, I would say, um, he was hey, planting the churches. I was going to ask you guys, is there a, like a parallel where, 
in the Soviet Union, a lot of our ancestors, all of our ancestors, were mandated by the authorities to not gather, to not preach the gospel, because especially the uh, Pentecostals were called, considered sects, right? Like they were in Russian, sectante, people who were not Orthodox, because that was the established church prior to the Bolshevik Revolution and the Communists coming mm. into power. And they were considered uh, those who were essentially cults, right? And uh, the government said, do not gather. And yet there is this long tradition of refusing to obey the government and still gathering to worship God. And does that, how do you reconcile that with Romans 13, where it says the government clearly is there to be obeyed? So when, it, when the Bible talks about authority and how we as Christians should respond to government authority and church structure, we need a systematic view. We can't take one verse and, you know, here in Romans where people will say, obey every single little thing the government is, everything's established by God, therefore follow it to the, you yeah. know, follow it to the, the iota. But how do you reconcile that when it's against God's word? And so that's where I would say even the most pacifistic, um, peaceful Christians would say, hey, no, you can't. Once it stands against the word of God, you are for you are obligated to serve Christ the king first and then government. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, you know, when we read verse 2, it says, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and they will incur judgment. And so it's like, oh, so, right, they, they'll use that. But then, of course, verse 3 says, uh, the rulers are a terror to good conduct, uh, not a terror to good conduct, but to bad so, right, so they're supposed to uphold the good things and the ba- and the bad things they're supposed to punish. But then it's like, wait a second, what does good and bad even mean? Like, according to what? According to what standard? It's like, of course, the Bible, God's law. Uh, th- there are situations and circumstances where Christians have to disobey the law. For example, in the Soviet Union, when there was a ban on all literature that was Christian, especially bibles and the new testament evangelia there, there's no there was no no way to have those and yet uh, christians would disobey embargoes and they would um smuggle bibles into russia right with the help of uh, foreign aid the united states and all those other missionary groups and same thing uh, nowadays with china right people christians smuggle in those things and um that was clearly against the authority. So do you think that American pastors and people in the United States have something to learn from that in regards to the aspect of COVID when um, they, like the pastors in their conscience knew that it was okay to gather on the data and yet the cities refused to let them gather. Was there an opportunity to say, hey, we're going to overstep the authority of those mayors? The Bible calls us for us Christians to be rational, logical, um, do things with wisdom, right? And if the pastor took all the steps, and again, we're going to have very different definitions of wisdom based on what study you read by who and at one point, you know, that study is going to look different now. It's going to look different in three years and five years. Um, um, You're talking about studies in regards to the data for vaccines and mandates and stopping the curve. Yeah. Because that's, it all changes a lot. There's a lot of studies. Most pastors have so much on their plate. Granted, 
very hot topic. I'm sure most of them read, you know, some kind of studies, but you're going to have different conclusions and different things. And I would say you'd be, you can't say a pastor is sinning by, I would say, going one way or the other, as long as you're doing it in good conscience and basing it in God's word to the, to the best of his ability. And like I said, basing it on biblical principles, because this is not a cut, a cut and dry issued, right? Well, it wasn't right at the time, but I think the Bible is clear in one point. It says, do not forbid the gathering of the saints. The body is meant to me in person. And, um, you know, even after a long time and we could talk about what time period, um, but I would say, you know, if there's a prolonged period of time and you're not meeting at all, I would say that's you're as a pastor are failing the responsibility of a church. It's different. You're not gathering, you're not meeting, you're not fellowshipping, um, I think people talk about the physical ramifications, right? Of, Hey, if you get together, you're going to get sick. And that's true. There's, there's death and sickness and disease and it's awful. And I'm not diminishing that, but at the same time, how about the mental health of people and the spiritual health? Um, who's to say that physical health is more important than spiritual health. One is temporary in this life. And that's granted again, I understand the suffering and I, know people around me and I'm sure everyone listening to this podcast knows of someone who died from these diseases. But at the same time, we as Christians look at it and it's just a speck of suffering compared to the vastness of eternal. And so for the government to come in and say, Hey, your spiritual, um, lessons and life and salvation matters less than your physical salvation. That's where the government oversteps the bounds over the church. And I would say pastors need to have the wisdom and the delineation to realize that in God's word, mm-hmm. physical is temporary, spiritual is forever. The stakes are high and Christians understood that. And this world worldly people didn't understand that. And we as Christians probably should have spoken up and said, Hey, this is why it matters. This is why it gathers. You're fearful now of your life, but you should be fearing it for eternity. What happens after you die? Yeah. People will bring up, uh, you know, for example, like seatbelts saying how, well, the government can impose certain restrictions, like things you have to wear. Um, but I don't think, uh, like when the government says you can't go to church is reasonable because right. Seatbelts are reasonable because they don't restrict you from gathering together for church. Uh, and then you could get in the whole debate with masks and all those things. Um, and of course, like how reasonable is it like there was a lot there was a lot of research even before COVID 19 though about masks and all the things and how there's a there's good argument on the other side to say that they aren't reasonable like they're not even like to help you know to help the spread in certain diseases like like cloth masks and all those things say say the say the numbers were terrible say it was like another black plague where 25 percent of the population was dying even then i wouldn't forbid the gathering of the saints what i'll do is split up the church do smaller churches hey do do gatherings of 10 do gatherings of 25 um this is where the government was cracking down on people not letting them even do these kind of gatherings you know if there's any kind of gatherings and the main problem people had is especially when it starts becoming a double standard okay say it's to you know, two months and we have online stuff. And like you said, Nick, it's a little different, but say, you know, we're going to compromise and go with them. But then you see people around you doing other stuff and events that they say are more important and take priority. And that's when the church should not stand down. And we should Mm -hmm. point out the hypocrisy, say, Hey, how, how come you're letting these people gather and not punish them? And so 
Um, the world will, the United States will keep growing more hostile towards Christians unless Christians stand up and say and do something. Um, the world hates Christ. It's going to keep happening. And I don't say that as discouragement. I say that as a reality. And Christians either can cow down and say, like, it'll happen, or you can speak yeah. up. People assume it's the end. What if we're the early church? Yeah. Speaking of cowing down, like, you know, fast food restaurants were still open, and those those could be considered people's places of worship. Uh, you know, like, those were essential things. Like, uh, and al- even outlawed, like, alcohol stores, the amount of alcohol that was being obtained and sold increased drastically because of these lockdowns people's depression and stuff yeah like covid by now is a really worn out topic in regards to the government and um the politics of it but i think it really did spark in the christian communities a discussion on how christians should react to not only government mandates due to pandemics and um restrictions in regards to health but more broadly, where the government is lawfully, and when I use the word lawfully, I'm referring to the law of God, obeying not only the mandates that were prescribed in the American Constitution for us and for other countries in different parts of the world, their mm-hmm. constitutions, but also the very authority that they have has been granted to them not by sheer willpower or force, but in fact, God himself has appointed these leaders. And so there is a hierarchy where God is the king of kings, like you guys have mentioned before, and the church should now recognize that when the government oversteps its boundary, the church should push back and say, we will not obey. Um, and this kind of brings us to the dynamic where we 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 as slavic people came from a whole nother world in regards to the church and the government and we came here to the united states um when you guys i know tom you were born in the states right mm-hmm. mark how old were you american i was born in you portland were born in america when you guys were growing up but you guys grew up in a russian community as me when you guys were growing up what was your view of what the government and the church should function as as a, so, as a Slavic. So I think most Slavics will uh, know what I'm talking about, this awkwardness. When you're in school and you're supposed to put your hand on your heart and pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States, and you think, I'm not pledging allegiance to anyone but Christ. And it's like, well, do you stand up? Do you stand out? And here are all these other kids in your class, some of them Christian, and they're pledging allegiance to this flag, but you were told in church, only pledge allegiance to Christ and no one else. That is, I, I share that sentiment very, very dearly. And then you would make sure on the under God part, you said it extra loud. Under God. <laughs> <laughs> but it's interesting. Um, there, and that's a clash, I'll say, of the two cultures. One, Russian, right, being very distrusting of government. Everything government does is bad and evil and Christians are completely separate. And you get in America where it's like, hey, you start talking about soldiers and God and god and freedom right and you're talking about you're thinking hey how come again from this is from the slavic context coming how can you be a soldier and kill people and be a christian it didn't that was one of my struggles it didn't make sense with my worldview at the time but i didn't i think it didn't paint a systemic view of the bible and what the bible says about soldiers government um authority 
when did your guys' views start changing when you started click when it was like because for the longest time i truly did believe that serving in the military and going overseas and fighting for a country um, or even in, like in our church <coughs> excuse me in our church bylaws it was unlawful to own a firearm and be a member of the church and so there were this this strong pacifist lineage where you um, do not interact with the government in any force. When did those views start changing for you guys, Tom and Mark? I started doing research in high school. Um, CARM.org is one of my favorite websites for hard Bible questions. That's uh, spelled C-A-R-M.org. And what I love about it is the articles are very succinct. And so there'd be like, can Christians own guns? Can Christians serve in the military? And it was these you know, Bible verse and to go straight to the point. And, you know, I'd be reading them and think, okay, well, what does the Bible really say about it? You know, is it my cultural presuppositions or is the guy writing it an American? Those are his cultural presuppositions, but exploring those ideas and what the Bible says about it and trying to form, like I said, a systematic view of how to compile everything. Cause I'll look at it and they say, well, you can't own guns, but I look at Israel, man, they were a war fearing, a war, I don't want to say war mongering people, but man, God sent them to war and God would praise and God would help them out in battle. And so it's like, how, well, how do you reconcile all of that? And that was kind of where I started questioning what is the role of government and Christians and warfare and, um, you know, use of force. Mark, did you have, I mean, sorry, Tom, did you have any kind of epiphanies or kind of any influences that change your perspective on how you view just American cultural government influences and the Slavic areas of government interaction. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm, I have no idea when the time was when I started changing my view in this, but my question would be like, so how does the, you know, how, how does it differ now? nowadays if you know israel was able to go to war with a country and that was just how is it different from now like when is a country able to go to war the different country um many of those um slavic counterparts would say it was just because it was all for the purpose of preserving the messianic line and the jewish people and they were god's chosen people and so they were unique in the fact that they were warring and when god would war for them and be justified um, because the nations around them, one, were doing evil things, two, none of them were saved. It was only God's elect nation of Israel that had that right. And then third, God would tell them who to war, when to war, you know, those kinds of things um, where they would say now, you know, it's it's not the Christian's role is what they would say. Uh, he who, the verse that would often be used, he who picks up the sword dies by the sword, right? Yeah, that was a very um, touted verse. That if you do yeah. pick up a sword, you will die. And they just referred, if you feel, if you're a violent person, you go to war, eventually you will get killed. Yeah. I mean, I guess I haven't really, when I was in the Russian church, I guess didn't really hear many, or I just didn't maybe pay attention to a lot of these arguments because I wasn't really serious about my faith. Yeah. Um, but maybe we could pivot into the discussion of the American Revolutionary War? I think, well, it that ties in really well because there's always this question of when is it biblically okay or when does God allow 
a group of people to use force in order to defend themselves, in order to resist, in order to push forward something they believe in, right? Mm-hmm. And there's this divide in between. Even in the United States today, Christians who truly believe that the Revolutionary War was an act that was succinct and biblical and was justified by scripture. And there is a side that says the revolutionary wars rebellion against God's appointed authority. Um, I would say the last thing that would help us jump into this topic would be the, the ending the discussion of pacifism. So, um, the, one of the verses that swayed me on pacifism versus it being okay to take someone's life in certain circumstances is why did Jesus say, if you have two cloaks, sell one and buy a sword? Well, people, I've heard answers from pacifists say, well, that's the spiritual sword. It's the word of God. Go buy a Bible. And then I asked them, what's the spiritual cloak then? And most of them have, I haven't had a good response yet. If someone is, please let me know. But Jesus explicitly was talking about self-defense. And then also when Peter cuts off the the ear, um, Christ tells him to put the sword back. He didn't say, get rid of the sword. He said, put it back in its place. Um, I think Jesus never, part of his letting himself get crucified was part of his God's plan, right? He said, "I no one takes my life, I lay it down. Yeah, and um, he, would, he said like, you know, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my, my servants would be fighting for me. So people would say, oh, they weren't fighting. They weren't, you know, trying to defend themselves. They were just going. But of course, as we understand from our perspective is that it was Jesus, like fulfilling a, prof- a prophecy of having to die like willingly. Jesus had a very specific mission about when to die, the timing. He even uh, had a heart. <clears throat> he even... Um, he told uh, people who he healed, you know, keep quiet. It's not my time yet. There was very specific timing and a very specific plan of how he was going to lay down his life and not fight for it. Same thing with establishing his kingdom. Um, it was not by the sword, but he didn't prohibit that nations don't do things by the sword, right? He said, no, this isn't God's way for salvation. And we can't take that and superimpose that on other areas of, uh, um, of life. Yeah, so the verses you were mentioning was Luke twenty two thirty six. If everybody wants to check it out, yeah, it is, yeah. And Tom, I like that you mentioned that there are different spheres, meaning the government has responsibility for just laws, protecting life, rewarding those who do good, like yeah. Romans says, and punishing evildoers. But Jesus Christ did not tell us to use the government or the sword in order to expand his kingdom instead he told us the what is what is the power that we have what does romans 1 1 6 say for the powers in the gospel right the gospel has the power in order to save first jew and then greek so there are two different spheres of influence there right one is the authority in the physical realm in in the governing bodies to enact war to protect life by means of the sword, by means of punishing up to death. And then Jesus Christ has his church, and the church functions solely with the weapon of the gospel, with the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, in order to go proclaim to all the nations that Christ is in fact Lord. You must repent and believe, or you will incur the wrath of God. Yeah. And that's what, you know, we we believe with Psalm, with Psalm 2. It says, kiss the sun, lest 
know, you incur his wrath. You know, just all the rulers and everyone is subject to to his to the ultimate king of kings and lord of lords. Yeah, and a lot of times we mix those things up together in the Russian community or the Slavic community where we say it is never okay to use the sword. But it's like, do you want Christian police officers or do you want atheistic police officers? Do you want Christian soldiers or do you want, um, you know, Muslim soldiers? What is your preferred um, faith of the person who is supposed to be protecting and using those weapons? Well, they they will say, thou shall not kill, right? Um and it depends what translation you're using. And you look at the Greek word and the implications there. Um, oh, the says, Greek, Hebrew. <laughs> Hebrew word. Um, it says murder, right? It's going to be murder. It's not kill if you look at it. Um, and the difference of murder, right? What is Jesus? Why does Jesus equate uh, hating to murder? Because that's where that stems from. It's from the heart, right? All sin stems from the heart. If you even look at a woman, you've committed adultery in your heart. Um you know, everything comes back to a heart issue. And so that's the issue with taking someone's life. Um, if the government wants to execute someone, capital punishment, a lot of people are against that. But the, the state doesn't do it out of vengeance, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And we as people should not. That's why I would say it's even very Christian world-based view when, uh, like, if a robber is running away from your house already and he's not a threat to you actively, he's trying to get away, Right and you shoot him in the back, the courts would say that is not self-defense and you are not justified in taking that man's life. Mm -hmm. um, even that's based on mosaic principles. You look at a lot of our case law and everything else in the United States is based on mosaic moral law, not the ceremonial law, right? Like dietary laws, but the moral laws haven't changed and those are based explicitly on a Christian worldview. And a lot of our government is, um, it doesn't come out of nowhere. People wonder, why people say it's a Christian nation because it's established on Christian principles. John Jay, our first Supreme Court justice, was he used Mosaic case law. I mean, everything through and through, if we're going to talk about the Revolutionary War, it's explicitly Christian. Yeah, if you read the Declaration of Independence, which I did for the first time recently, like the whole thing, there are um, three um, mentions of who God is, either through providence, the supreme judge of the world, and then it also mentions uh, the nature, law of nature, and the nature, God of that nature. And so the basis for the revolutionary war in which this country was founded was uh, solely based on the fact that God has endowed us with inalienable rights, and the governments that were in London, England, were disobedient to the very constitution that they themselves um, swore to obey. Yeah. In other words, it wasn't a war of rebellion against people who were lawfully obeying the law. It was a declaration of independence from people who were disobedient to their very own constitution and they were being unlawful yeah. and disobeying God's law. Yeah, we don't fully understand like everything that happened a lot of times when we look at the American Revolution but if we look at the the result of what happened it was right it was the boston boston massacre right it was uh it was the british that started attacking the rioters of course the the rioters were not doing it biblically correct well i believe the actual story was someone threw some stones some snowballs but but the escalation of the fact that 
Britain and their king was actually being tyrannical, right? The definition of tyranny is someone who disregards the law of God and tries to rule in a way where he appoints himself as the arbiter of what is evil and what is good. Mm -hmm. And so um, the argument for the Revolutionary War being justified was the ruling governments were disobedient to God's law and therefore... Uh, the governments underneath the king, which were in the colonists, had to constantly petition parliament, constantly ask for the ruling powers and authorities to obey the very law that they avowed to obey in the constitution, in the charters that were presented in the colonies. And when the constant response was, we're going to disobey, not only are we going to disobey the laws of the land and the laws of God, but we are on top of that going to suppress and persecute and bring soldiers from foreign countries as mercenaries and our own soldiers to kill their fellow brothers and fellow man. That is where the founding fathers drew the line and said, it is now our responsibility and duty to resist as lower magistrates, resist the tyranny of the king and to self-defense Mm-hmm. from the British crown. And obviously there is different, you know, some people say it was a rebellion, some people say it was a revolution, but there's a different contrast between, for example, the American Revolution and the French Revolution, where France completely just disregarded any idea of authority and they just lopped heads off with guillotines. But there's a difference between, for example, um, the ass- assassination of... Um, Abraham Lincoln and John Wilkes Booth, right? He was disobedient. And some people say, well, what's what's wrong with John Wilkes Booth killing Abraham Lincoln? And what's what's to say it was in the same theme or in the same stream of the revolutionary founding fathers disobeying the king? What would you guys kind of talk about that? You know, there was one man who decided to kill the president because he felt it was unjust. And there was this group of people deciding to rebel against the king. Governments can make unjust decisions. Individuals can make unjust decisions. But individuals are never, unless they are in immediate way of harm, permitted to take someone's life. Especially when it's, when I say the word vengeance, that means there's something been committed wrong, either against you or your family member. And it is not us to the individual because of our high-strung emotions. And it would impede, God understands it would impede our ability to rationalize you always hear um people saying well if somebody did this to my daughter i'll go over there and end their life i don't care the consequences consequences be damned and that's a very natural human response it comes from an image of god as far as wanting justice and that's the appropriate um, emotional level but it's not the appropriate physical um, level it is not ours because we're not jury judge and executioner that is the role is by the state here in the united states and I would say that's also based on moral um, mosaic moral law. You look at it, it's very spelled out very clearly. If you set up a hole and someone's cow fell in there and it's your hole and your responsibility, um, you would pay back that guy three times as much for his cattle um, if you harm. Anyway, my point being is, is very well-established justice. So to answer Nick's question, when is it okay? Um, the government ideally should have uh, a means through the justice system that they've established, whether it be monarchical or uh, representative republic, whatever means, it should reflect God's law. Again, this is where people 
look at the American justice system, even as corrupted as it is today and it has gone astray, you would still say it's probably still one of the better ones in the world. You would know this coming from the Slavic countries, right? That's our audience. You, you know, you bribe a police officer $20 here, you give a doctor $50 here for a COVID, you know, shot certificate to get into the United States, things like that. Um, you would still say, hey, it's still, there's still good justice. And it's because it's based on God's principles. And as we stray away from those principles, that's when we start seeing perversion. But God's law is perfect and his word is perfect. And when we follow his things, I call it the the accidental, uh, I don't know if you would say fruit or results of following the gospel, that good things happen when you follow godly principles, even if you're not, per se, a regenerate person. Um, mm -hmm. So going back to the revolution, when it says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, that's where people would say, well, he's no longer governing, he's being tyrannical. Yeah, and they are still subject to the governing authorities, but the governing authorities happen to be lower magistrates like governors and representatives of the colonies. And so uh, they're actually being in submission to authorities that actually are obeying God's law because those authorities happen to be in the colonies. Those authorities happen to be uh, governing in a way where it's they will for the good of the people. And I, I just recalled two examples of biblical parameters, which you referenced the Old Testament. Um, in the Old Testament... There was a law where uh, it stated that if you interact with your parents and you call them an idiot or stupid, if you called your parents a moron, you were obligated to be brought before the governing rulers and then be put to death. In other words, the parents themselves could not take vengeance upon the children. They had to go through an intermediary, which happened to be the ruling authorities. And I would say you you phrased it very well where you said that um, for example, the the execution or the um, murder of Abraham Lincoln, he did not gather and have lesser authorities like governors, like Congress, like the Senate, take Lincoln and say, you are being wrong, and here's God's standard, and here's God's law, and you broke it. And here are the consequences for that. He took it in his own hands as someone who wanted vengeance, and that was the fallout, right? He was deemed an assassin, someone who was evil, versus um, in regards to Israel, for example, one of the judges, right, um, he, many of the judges, they worked as a, as a people group, they gathered and they decided according to God's law, and then they acted with governing authorities. And so there was always an authority there, right, in, in the United States. There were authorities. It, it were, isn't just individuals rising up and killing random British citizens or random British soldiers, they were recognizing that God had placed magistrates um, over them in the colonies, and they were acting within the authority that those magistrates had to resist the king. It wasn't this individualistic desire to have vengeance. It was a decision of the people groups in the form of government to actually react. Mm -hmm. Some people want to divorce the old testament and the new as far as like i said mosaic law ceremonial law and it's true we don't follow ceremonial law that was explicitly for the jews because i keep referencing the old testament and israel and these different things and a lot of people will say no you can't do that it's been abrogated by the new testament we it's done away with but it's not jesus said i came to fulfill those laws not abolish them when he talks about law right what are the two laws that you follow you accidentally fulfill everything else 
love the Lord God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, right? Between following those two laws, you will accidentally, quote unquote, fulfill everything else. And so part of that love and loving your neighbor is this, like I talk about moral law. It's not done away with. Why do we still follow the Ten Commandments? That's not done away with, is it? Then why would you do away with the rest of the moral law? So that's where I say you can't divorce that from your biblical understanding. Um, granted, you can't also treat all the new governments like Israel. I understand that everything has its place in context, but I would encourage my brothers and sisters, look at the Old Testament and examine ceremonial law, moral law, look at the difference. One's very applicable and it's very easy uh, conversation to have. They'll say, well, you believe that you can't eat shrimp and this if you follow that. <laughs> well, there was reason and rationale and we can talk about a different time uh, those differences. But again, I'll say all this still applies. And going back to the revolution, it wasn't a coincidence that the um, re uh, the founding fathers came up with you know, the constitution, these other things, there was speakers and writers before that, um, propagating these ideas and deriving them from scripture. They didn't come from anywhere. You've heard of the names Locke, Rousseau, um, these kind of guys who are, uh, Hobbes who are writing about God's principles and why they form into government, right? Where you extrapolate government, forms from it. Um, for example, take John Locke's Two Tristices of Government. Just listen to his table of continents. People who say uh, separation of church and state, right? People are bother, uh, borrowing from the Christian worldview and benefiting. So listen to the contents of Adam's title to sovereignty by creation, of Adam's title to, to sovereignty by fatherhood, of political power concerning the original extent and end of civil government, of you know, I mean, you, you just read through these. I'm not going to read through all of them, but it talks about, it explicitly ties in created order, Genesis, into forms of government, what God has established and God has ordained. Um, he talks about from the paternal structure of, you know, how Adam's in charge of the family structure, right? But just like that, the, the wife has tons of input. So when people say, look at this white supremacist thing that's created, um, if I, if you go read through it, it'll say, no, the wife has just as much power because he, she lives with him, even though he, at the end of the day, makes the final decision. If he makes a bad one, she's not going to let him live it down. You know, things like that coming from God's word. And so when people say, Hey, things were unjust, it's like, no, this is based on godly principles. And I'll encourage my brothers and sisters, if you're interested in this, look into the history where this came from. And I would even encourage, uh, non-believers who say it's not based on a Christian worldview. Stop, go look into these um, go look into these documents, these enlightenment ideas. They didn't come from nowhere. They didn't sprout from nowhere. These rights that are enumerated that are God given rights. Why does it matter if we're bags of protoplasm and atheistic standard? Where do these morals come from? All politics is based on morality. And so I, I think even here in the States, um, as far as public education, most of my peers, listening to this probably went through public education like me and I'll say public education does a very good job covering the revolutionary war, but does a very bad job of explaining why they did it. They will talk about the, the economic stances and that the, they didn't want an established church of England. We could talk about that too, but they don't talk about that. It was derived from express what people say are express, um, rights and authorities by God that no one can infringe upon. If, for example, in the Adam structure, right, the Adam and Eve structure family, if Adam's being abusive to Eve, he no longer has authority over that family because he's 
usurped God's, um, um, what, how he's supposed to be as a father. As In other words, he's becoming a tyrant. He's becoming a tyrant. So now that it, it's a covenant, right? It's a, it's a structure. And part of that structure is he has responsibilities as a husband. And when he starts failing those, um, and I'm talking to the point of like abuse or, um, harm or not providing for the family, you know, if his family's starving, he's, he's not following God's commandment for that. And so that's where the founding fathers took that idea and you elevate it from there to, like Nick said, the lower magistrates to, okay, these people around here choose, you know, what their local governments, their mayors, who's going to rule over them. And you could even look at Israel as an example, um, even in a monarchy, right? Monarchy is like, well, people don't have a choice. Israel came to Saul, not Saul, to, um, Samuel, Samuel and said, appoint to us a king. And he appointed Saul, right? So even then they said, hey, we, and it was the tribes, the leaders of the tribes came together and said, we have made this decision and we're given over, we want a monarchy. So even then they were given permission and they said, we will submit. And he said, you know, here are the um, contingencies and what you'll incur. And they said, yeah, that's fine. You know, um, so that's where the founding fathers, again, very small group of them, there was a lot of Christians who disagree with this. And, I, and I'm not saying that they were 100% justified. It's too hard for us to go back and say whether they were or not, given the things of the time. And there was plenty of Christians that were um, loyalists, right? And there were plenty of Christians that were revolutionists. Like, well, how do you coincide that? Some of these guys would preach in church. It was called the Black Road Rebellion. Um, if you've ever listened to Jeff Durbin, he always talks about this. They would preach in their black robe. And then after they're done with their sermon, they'd go pick up their long rifle. Well, it's like, how does someone jump to this conclusion? Like, instead of judging them and let's say this is their hundred percent wrong, let's examine biblically and systematically and decide. And after we've decided and looked at all the verses, decide, yes, that's right or wrong. And I would encourage all my brothers and sisters listening today to do the same thing before you jump to your presuppositions. Let's say what the word of God says. I'm not saying agree with the revolution wholesale or vice versa. But it is your responsibility under, you know, God's word to rationally and logically go through it systematically. Like, like I said, I think that's the number one flaw I see with Slavic and myself coming from that environment is we're never told, hey, what do you do with these two verses? How do you make them go together and harmonize when you have verses that don't harmonize? It's not going to work well. So I would encourage whatever worldview you want to pull out of this, make sure all parts of the Bible harmonize. And the more they harmonize, the, probably the closer the truth you are. Yeah. I mean, the only the only justification I could see of the American Revolutionary War is the self-defense argument. Um, if it was just a like a. If it was just a revolution, like without that, then it would have been absolutely not justified. Uh, so I'd like to read the end of the Declaration of Independence. We are therefore representatives of the United States in general Congress assembled appealing to the Supreme Judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, due in name, and by the authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and the right ought to be free, independent states, and that we are absolved from any allegiances to the British crown, and that all political connections between them and the states of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states, they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, conduct al contract alliances, establish commerce, 
and do all the other acts and things which independent states may are and have the right to do. For the support of this declaration with a firm resilience and protection of the divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. The people who wrote the Declaration of Independence fully embraced the fact that it was God who gave men the ability to be free. And the conclusion of that freedom was eventually conducted with the abolition of slavery because that was the dissonance, right? All, all the founding fathers talked about freedom and yet there was this um, hypocrisy where slavery still existed. And the whole Declaration of Independence is boiled down to the fact that they appeal to the very judge and supreme ruler of the world as the one who gave people the authority to govern themselves and as soon as a tyrant oppresses or um, suppresses the very law that the tyrant agreed to and now is uh, uh, evicting the responsibility for the people have the ability through magistrates that were already appointed to resist and to declare a new government that fulfills the will of the people that was essentially the conclusion that Um, the colonists came up to and they in fact ended up saying hey it is god's decision to rule if we are doing this for a just cause or not they appealed to the supreme ruler and judge of all the earth when we're talking about the individual rebelling versus um organized group of people right a government that's all it is it's a a group of people agreeing to be governed you'll notice that the revolutionists didn't do it on their own it was a one man here one man there guerrilla type warfare right it was a well-organized militia you know george washington and he's leading them and they're being funded and you know they have rules and they're being led like a military and so it was essentially hey they had and you can talk about well there it was reforming government or creating a new one i mean more likely creating a new one they had realized at the point that there's no going back but even then they weren't acting as an individual they were acting as a government so at that point you have two separate governments and that's i would say where there would be more even justification from a christian worldview of again it's not the individual acting it is now a government granted a small one funded by just a few you know rich oligarchs who had the money to wage war but nonetheless one who believed it and had a strong christian conviction to go fight that battle so one thing i wanted to touch on um where nick was saying you know they already had the system and that gov- that king king um was a king george the second third the third he was not fulfilling his rules so uh my stomach sorry uh in his speech to parliament this is king james in 1603 so that tells you how much time this was before then this is what he said i prefer i will ever prefer the will of the public and the whole commonwealth in making good laws and constitutions to any particular and private ends of mind thinking ever the wealth and will of the commonwealth to be my greatest will and worldly felicity a point to wherein a lawful king doth directly differ from a tyrant for i do acknowledge that the special and greatest point of difference that is between a rightful king and an usurping tyrant is this 
that whereas the proud and ambitious tyrant doth thank his kingdom and the people are only ordained for his satisfaction and his desires and unreasonable appetites the righteous and just king doth by the contrary acknowledge himself to be ordained for the procuring of the wealth and property of his people and again and so you know king james is kind of hard to understand <laughs> it was the old school the, the old speech of the time but his point being is the king was meant to serve the people and not the people the king right and so you can see how far that straight aside i mean this was again the reason i'm reading this is not to justify it, but just say this was where the people were coming from this was their understanding this was their history was the king was there to serve the people and so when he won't let them have any you know many cases their own juries won't listen or have any representatives i mean they had a parliament over there that already got to that point and you take that along with israel and their founding you know choosing a king you know that's why they were upset and if you look at the bible when kings became self-serving it always became very bad you know because they forget that god's the one that put them there yeah there's a story where um right Adel i believe it was adaliah she usurped the kingdom she became queen in israel and there's a priest with a young boy and they overthrew her and in place the right rightful king back on the on the throne and the whole point was she was disobedient to god's law and the way god functioned and so god through the priest and the king usurped her justly and appointed the righteous king um, I want to ask you guys about a modern application of this kind of um, understanding in regards to we have a federal government who um, for the longest time supported, funded, and encouraged the destruction of unborn life and the abortion um, industry to the point where there are millions of humans being murdered in the womb. What's federal? I mean the government that is in Washington, D.C., that is, you know, elected by the states in order to rule. Um, the Supreme Court, the, the House, Supreme the Court. Senate, the President, that's yeah. the federal government and all the agencies, DEA, FBI, um, the CDC, yeah, that, the that's office. all federal. No, the judicial, the executive, and the legislative branches. Isn't the post office a federal building or no? I work for the post office, and we are a federal entity, but we are not the federal government. But e even even in regards to abortion, it was it was the um, judicial system that judged this ruling, but it wasn't actually ever a law. And so, um, was it is it is it just for a governor or for a mayor to say, in our town, we will have no abortion clinics, even though it is against the law of the land? we will appeal to a higher authority, which is the law of God, that states thou shalt not murder. And the murder of unborn children is the most egregious thing you could do in regards to murder. And so we will ab abolish abortion in our state, even though it is against the federal government's rulings. The Jewish midwives disobeyed the order to kill male children in Exodus 1:15 through 17. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Sipra, and the other was named Pua. And he said, When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon a birthstool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death. But if it is daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. And then later on, the pharaoh asks, you know, what's going on? Why are these boys being born? And they lie to Pharaoh and say, 
the Hebrew women are strong. They are not like the women of Egypt. Before we even get there, the children are already born. And uh, God blessed the midwives because they were honoring God's law rather than obeying Pharaoh, who was the supreme ruler of the land. It, it's one of the very few examples of where believers straight up lied and God still blessed them. Because the lie was not unrighteous due to the fact that they were doing something righteous. They were protecting life. And, uh, you know, there's this discussion in the United States currently where the law was overturned, not the law, the, the ruling was overturned. And now um, there are states who banned abortion. There are states who limited abortion and, you know, praise God. But what if there are circumstances in which the federal government mandates the killing of unborn life and allows it to occur? Is is there a biblical precedent, according to what you just read, for governors and states to say, we will not allow this. Come what may, you know, let the federal government wage war against these states. We are following God's law, right? And is there a difference between the government doing it and lesser magistrates doing that? And then some random guy coming up and just like, you know, firebombing a, we, a clinic. We do not advocate the firebombing of Planned Parenthood clinics. Because that's taken vengeance into an individual's hands rather than appealing to a lower magistrate, which would be, a governor or someone in position of authority that God has given them, right? We are, we are, the individuals are not giving authority by God to we, act and we, act vengeance. We as Christians and anyone needs accountability, even um, like end abortion now, which I would say it does some of the greatest work for ending, truly ending abortion here in America, not just by name, but actually by doing it, proclaiming a Christian, uh, a solid gospel viewpoint of or basis, I should say. Even they would say, we don't want you, they say on the website, we don't want you to individually go to, they call them abortion mills, right? The Planned Parenthoods and the other places where babies are being murdered. And they'll say, we don't want you to act individually because we need accountability. And that's where they say, please do it from a church. So if you're part of a church, then your church can sign up and go do it. And the reason for that is like, if you act inappropriately, rudely, if you cross the line as a Christian, you need accountability. And that's why... It's, it's good not to do things alone, whether it's ministry. Granted, there's going to be times you speak alone to different people, and we as Christians have wisdom, but the great thing and the beauty of the church and fellowship, we can point out, again, in cultural context of what's normal for our times and say, hey, brother, that's awesome you're speaking truth, but you were harsh in this way or this regard. And I'm not saying you have to be nice to everyone. You can speak truth very harshly and call it what it is. You can say it's baby murder, but you can do it without a way of you know following the local laws. Um, like example, Jeff Durbin and abortion. Now he gets confronted by the Arizona police, um, and, uh, the Phoenix police department and they're pointing out to him and saying, Hey, what you're doing is wrong. And he, he, instead he takes their own law and says, Hey, you guys are, and he's encouraging him read this law. And anyway, the point of the interaction is we can as Christians, we can use the law of the land to help expedite, um, the gospel and preach the gospel and save babies' lives or whatever we're doing, whatever ministry. Um, you'll say you'll see Paul um, advocated his own citizenship, right, to protect himself. He didn't have to advocate that, hey, I'm a citizen and I have rights, but he used it. And we, within those confines, that actually helped promote the gospel. So I would say we as Christians um, and governors and mayors, um, we need more Christian governors and mayors to stand up and say this because we can say it's wrong and it'll be within their power. Um, things that are unconstitutional get overturned all the time, right? 
slavery was unconstitutional, got overturned. Um, there's all these um, cases where someone has a police interaction. They don't they they stand up to the police officer and they get arrested or they say, hey, this is unright, whatever the cases are. And it gets goes up to the Constitution. There's laws on the books, but it gets overturned as unconstitutional. So us in this country, we're actually very blessed in the fact that there's still some vestiges of justice, right? More so than in other parts of the world. I mean, you, I, don't, I know often we're dismayed, but you can't compare it to communist China. And I would say that within these confines, if we start speaking up and get rid of this idea of church and state, which was the only place it was coined was in uh, Thomas Jefferson's uh, letter response to the Banbury Baptist um, saying that, hey, are you going to basically, are you going to protect the church's rights from the government? And he was saying, yes, that's essentially what it is. You can go read it. It's a very short letter. It's only a couple paragraphs long. But this whole idea that Christians can't be involved in politics or anything else or speak out, I think that's one of the greatest uh, lies the church has believed. It's not true. We should be proclaiming the gospel in every facet of life. It doesn't matter if you're all post, pre-millennial, whatever eschatology is, we as Christians should be, because we're not prohibited to, why aren't we going to town hall meetings? Why aren't we talking about uh, schools, all the different places? Um you know, obviously you can't preach your faith everywhere every 24 seven, but you can say, Hey, this is explicitly based on a Christian worldview. You can confront people about that and get educated. And I don't know, we have a lot of leeway as Christians and we often forget that here in this country. Yeah. Well, okay. Marijuana, right? How marijuana until very recently was considered a class one controlled substance, the same as meth methamphetamines and the other hard drugs colorado decided no we don't want to follow it and what happened to colorado did they lose their federal funding for their highways or their schools nothing happened to them no and even if it got increased and all these other states started following students like hey what do you know the federal government's not doing anything granted the federal government depending who's on charge would be a lot more harsh but um you know I don't say biblically there's anything wrong with disobeying someone higher up who says they're wrong than you, especially if you're in a position of authority. Your position as a governor, right, is to protect the life and according to that constitution of the state, the people in the state. So if you believe the baby is a person, you have responsibility to be able to protect that person. But you can't just arbitrarily decide that you want to disobey the federal government because of your personal opinion, right? You have to have a foundational principle that you find in God's law in order to disobey or disregard the law that was put in place because it's anti-God law, right? It's, it's, it's against God's law. Yeah. One more thing before we wrap up. Uh, I was thinking right at the end of that Romans 13 passage talks about taxes. Oh, yeah. Uh, like some Russians uh, or Slavic people in general have gone a little too far in that they... Can I explain like, how it works? Yeah, if the IRS is listening? Sure. <laughs> so there, there is a way where large, and since Russian, Russian, Ukrainian, Slavic people have large families, there is a write-off that you can do in order to have a tax benefit. You can claim up to three dependents, three kids that are dependent upon you. Now, let's say you have 10 kids and you claim three of them. You have seven left over, right, that you can't claim and have a tax benefit for. What some individuals claim, apparently, I don't know if this is true or not, supposedly do, allegedly, 
allegedly. All those, all those words do is they take one of the siblings that is older who has a job and they claim three more dependents under them. Now, the way they do it is they take and they file that individual under a different address wow. and they file under them and then they say, hey, these three kids are actually dependent on them. When it's not true because all, in fact, what's real is they all live in the same household. Those three kids never actually get any money from that sibling because according to law, you have to have more than 50% of those three kids living with that person of the year. So dependent between, and dependent so, within a dependent? Yeah, and so what they do is they Amazing. file taxes this way, I, I've heard, and they get, you know, X amount of $1,000. And the justification for this is, well, we don't want the government to have more money to fund things like transgender programs and these gay parades and things like that. And they are rebelling against the authority, not by appealing to a lower magistrate and saying it's against God's law, but within their own decision of morality saying, well, we're resisting in this way and they are not biblically justified to do so. Are they allowed to do that if they're within a, like, not individual, but within a congregation, like within, under the authority of elders? No, because all the elders will say, pay your taxes. Because Jesus said, give to Caesar where to Caesar's. And Jesus paid his taxes, right? That's, sadly, that's very true. Caesar, like, was not that good of a guy. (laughs) And so, there's no justification for that, right? It's already easy enough to screw up on your taxes or miss something that they can get you. Um, where if you try to do something deliberately and knowingly, um, it can be a detriment to you. Say, say later on, the church does get persecuted, right? We're seeing bouts of it in California about certain laws with children, what you can and can't teach them. And we're seeing it in Nordic countries where, um, someone saying, um, you know, teaching their kids against homosexuality and these different things. And they start putting false charges on these different people. If you can be as blameless as possible, granted, they could always try to put things on you later, but if they have actual things they can stick on you, um, you're more, I mean, that's already, uh, it's not good for your character not for your case. You know, if you're already something they can blame you for Al Capone, right? They got him on taxes. The point being is even though he did other, other stuff they got him on something right and the same thing with christians if you can try to be as blameless in all walks of your life both in your in your business dealings and in your personal dealings and the way you walk around you then you are one you're a good testament to christ you might win him over by your conduct right and you're going to be blameless when they go try to stick other things on you they're not going to have anything on you like that one christian apologist right taxes Mm -hmm. what was his name uh, Cantovind. Cantovind. I don't. I don't. I think there is more complexity to that story mm-hmm. than just taxes. But you know, pull your permits, sell your cars yeah. with the correct title, pay your taxes, be a good yeah. citizen. That way, that way, like you'll be like Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They didn't have any charge. They literally had to slander him to make up charges. Which, if we, you know, hopefully, if we have a good judge you'll be they'll they'll be able to see like based on the bible two or three you know witnesses to see if this is good evidence or not and between jesus and the sanhedrin he was had no guilt uh and then when he went to pontius pilate pontius pilate even understood there was no guilt but 
Yeah. Yeah. Don't lie on your taxes. Make sure when you're selling a car, you don't cheat on your taxes as well. Make sure your title is salvage if it's salvage. Um, pull your permits if you're building something. There's there's don't, also nothing. Don't mess with your truck logs. Yeah. There's nothing wrong with being shrewd, and you don't have to go above and beyond doing things to the government. Every single legal ta- loop tax hole and business structure, you are welcome, and you are, uh, I would say, encouraged by the Bible to do that. You can take a, every advantage as long as it's legal. Yeah. There's a ton of you can form your business as an S corp, an LLC, and be taxed as an S corp, and you instead of paying thirty percent on taxes, you only get fifteen percent on tax, and that's a hundred percent legal or nonprofit right? <laughs> healing ministry. <laughs> <laughs> so there's. There's nothing wrong with being sharp and wise, and shrewd's kind of like a gray word, but you know well, what I mean. Well, the Bible says be as shrewd as serpents and be as... Dwight Shrewd. <laughs> so, uh, you know, when we're talking about do, do, doing things by book and pulling every permit at the same time, you can use the government's own laws, and I've done this within city dealings, right? They wanted to try to make me jump through extra hoops and different things on point and say, oh, well, what about... And you do it nicely with a smile, right? You say, what about this and this law, right? So by their own law, you could actually benefit yourself, one, for business dealings, and then two, for the gospel, whether that's police interactions, you know, if you're preaching an abortion mill or um, being accused of not wanting to teach your kids homosexuality, whatever it comes down to. It's crazy how so many of these happenings, like tax things happen is just because like the government wants to, wants to make more money. Like, oh, you'll get, the employees will make more money just because they're able to force more money out of you or something like that. Anyway, <laughs> taxes. You should pay your taxes, even though you want to really outrageous taxes on tea. Yeah. Well, we created a whole country out of that. Um, I'll say the kind of some final thoughts would be um, Christian charity and understanding. Right. We go through COVID and all this, and I'll say that's one of the biggest reflections that I see is the lack of Christian charity where people say, you are not loving your neighbor, you're hating your neighbor and vice versa. Um, that you're not love being a loving pastor by not letting your pe- congregation gather and that you're doing it a different way. I would say Christian charity and leeway in that and basing it less on emotion and the data of the time. Cause we have to realize that data changes and maybe we should base it more on God's word and less on numbers and what the news says, right? Would, would that be a, I would say that would be a good principle that most Christians would agree on. Let's base it more on God's word and less on things that can change because God's word never changes. And then I would also say that, um, despite government, um, whether it's, you know, a just system or unjust system, God will make his things happen through whatever government system it is even if it's the worst tyrannical government you know china oppressing uh, uyghur muslims and christian churches and persecuting them um, the christian church thrives in times of persecution and um, there's also a ton of churches in america you go drive down the street there's every church and every flavor that you can imagine maybe almost to a detriment and whatever the situation is we as Christians with the power of God and the Holy Spirit can preach the gospel and we can make everything known. And despite the government structure, we could work within that government structure, whether it's through what the world would define as rebellion or um, through going the legal means of the established means like here in the States where we have 
outlets and public protests and we can speak up in public, whatever the means are, I would say it's our duty as Christians to keep proclaiming the gospel.